pray that you would be pleased to make your word uh, come alive to each one of us. Uh, help me in uh, working through this material that's uh, on the screen before me here at the pulpit, on the screen behind me for your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us minds to comprehend how your new covenant church is marked by all being regenerate, all knowing you, and all being forgiven of our sins. Help us to see our great privilege in this. Help us to see our privilege of being born at a, at a point when the fullness of your scriptures have been given to us, where we can look back in the old and see some of the uh, preliminary provisions, even of a physical nation of Israel that helps us to understand the spiritual nation of Israel, your people. Draw near to us and bless. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in this section of Romans 11, uh, that is the international defense of the gospel. The gospel is to go to all, to both Jew and Gentile. We have most recently been focusing on human responsibility, ours to believe and ours to share, ours to be a part of a church that is sending those who will preach to others. And as we think of the Apostle Paul in the first century, I think it's appropriate for us to know that he's got some kind of map in his mind. And he's thinking in terms of how he has been ministering, how he's been sharing the gospel here in the area of Palestine, the area where Israel is. He's shared the gospel up into Syria. It's there the church at Antioch has sent him out on a missionary journey. He's traveled through what we know as Asia Minor. He's been over to Macedonia and to Greece. He's been taking the gospel really to the ends of his known earth. And even as he is writing to the church there at Rome, if we envision him on this side of the Mediterranean, thinking of where he's been, and if he ends up coming to Rome, he wants the church there to send him on to Spain. And he writes that very plainly to them. Well, I've kind of highlighted this a little bit already, where uh, he is saying we've got a responsibility to Jew and Greek, the same Lord is Lord over all. As he says in chapter 15, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia. When therefore I have completed this, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So you just listen to those various places that he's mentioned and it's apparent that he's got a map in his mind, he's a missionary, he's going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ as far as he possibly can. What we've seen under human responsibility is something of our church-based responsibility in evangelism. 
We want people to call on Jesus' name as they believe, to call on Jesus' name in worship. That means they have to believe in him. That means they have to hear in him. Someone, therefore, has got to be preaching. And if someone's going to be preaching, they need to be sent. And who's going to send them? Well, the church is. Acts 13. The church is at Antioch is the church that sent the Apostle Paul. And so there is this human, yes, God is sovereign. But we don't sit home and simply wait for believers to believe or elect to believe in the various places. No, we need to have something of the spirit and disposition of the Apostle Paul. We want the gospel to be going forward. As believers, we ought to be lovers of maps because those maps represent individuals who need to hear the gospel of Christ. Well, this morning, we are to be beginning uh, the section of Romans chapter 11. And for me, this is one of the most difficult passages to understand And if it's difficult to understand, then you might have some measure of difficulty in explaining it, especially if you're fudging. So as I come through this, I wanted to give a bit of background as we come to it. And the more background I pulled together, then the more background I pulled together to the more background that I pulled together to the point where I realized either I do an introduction or I do the sermon but I better not do both, at least not in the same Lord's Day. So I tried to give a little bit of structure to this uh, introduction, this introductory background. Please don't think that from now on I plan on preaching uh, from the iPad with this on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, This is a one-off for this particular situation. In the chapter of Romans 11... There is language here, you can see Morris's division, remnant of Israel, restoration of Israel, and conversion of Israel. So it may be rather important to understand who Israel is, especially when Israel is used in different ways uh, right uh, in the book of Romans. So our structure is a little bit from when we come to it, Uh, Has God rejected his people? And then down in verse 7, what then? So here's the question for this morning. Who are God's true people? If you ask this smaller question of, well, do you mean who are God's true people in the Old Testament? Who are God's true people in the New Testament? Well, we're well on our way to answering that question. Notice with me, what we've got going on, this very striking picture in Romans chapter 11 and verse 2, latter part. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Now that's a striking statement, isn't it? Where a prophet is pleading to his God against a commodity that is known as Israel. And that leads us to recognize he's got a conflict against Israel. 
Well, is this Israel good? Are they going to heaven in their present state? What did this Israel do? Well, notice verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. This does not sound like a very good people of God, does it? A people of God that has already killed a number of God's prophets and a people of God that are for some reason wanting to get their hands on Elijah, and if they can, they're going to kill him. But this shows us something of the difficulty here in Romans, and understand, well, who is Israel? Who's the true people of God? So the contrast that is set up here is verse 2, against Israel, a carnal, murderous Israel. And then on down to verse 5, so that at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So we're dipping into our text to see something of the difficulty. Who's the true people of God? Is it Israel, according to the flesh, murdering prophets, or is it the remnant chosen by grace? We know the answer to it, but we have to ask that question to see something of the radical contrast before us. So we have unconverted, murderous Israel on one hand, believing Elijah and the 7,000 who make up the remnant chosen by grace on the other. And it gives us a very striking contrast. Thus, our extended introduction this morning, who are the true people of God? And it's one of the more difficult passages to understand. Let's proceed with care and with caution. First of all, Roman number one, what are God's people called in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, they are called Israel. Israel is the name that was given to Jacob after he had been wrestling that night uh, before the Lord. He is that one who wrestles with God. Jacob's descendants included 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. It's one of the most common terms, Israel. But what does Israel mean? Secondly, B. Another common name for Israel is the Jews. They are, that's a name that comes from Judah. The leading tribe, the first time it's found in the scriptures, is Mordecai the Jew, that one who is from Judah. And even though not all Israelites are from Judah, and not all of them are from the tribe of Judah, yet this term Jew is one that is broadly applied to them. Hebrews, likely a name that comes from one of Abraham's great-great-great-grandfather, I don't know how many generations back, but a man by the name of Eber, and from that they were called the Hebrews. But it's this group of people that descended physically from Abram, the Hebrew. Fourthly, D, another Old Testament name is sons of Abraham. Sons of Abraham or children of 
Abraham, those that descend from him physically. And yet, Jesus and Paul both call upon the Jews who are physical sons of Abraham to make sure that they are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they will be true spiritual sons of Abraham. Uh, Let's look back at Genesis 12. Genesis 12 on the screen before you is to show something of the three promises that were given to uh, Abram. Just as he's come out of the uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, he's left, uh, he's leaving Haran. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. First of all, the land of Canaan points to heaven. I'm going to give you a place to live. And like any good teacher, God takes that which is known in order to show that which is not yet known. It's easier for them to understand an earthly and physical land, the land of Canaan. But Abraham knows what God is doing with this teaching lesson. As he comes into the land, you remember he no more gets there and there's a famine and he has to go down to Egypt to get food to live. It's like, you know, what kind of land is this? And he's promised this land, you look this way, look that way, and this way and the other, and you're going to get all this. It's just you're not going to get it. Your descendants. And that leads Abram to get the object lesson. Look at Hebrews 11 with me. And now verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, for he was looking forward, skipping verse 9, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You're going to get a promised land. But ultimately, your promised land is not this piece of real estate here on the earth, this earthly, physical land, is for you to look at it, long for it, and see that the ultimate fulfillment is that land in heaven. It is heaven itself. Further, now, verse 13, the end there marked in the green, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Uh, Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So I want you to get this in your minds. God gives an earthly, physical promise. But when God gives that to Abraham, he wants him to know that there is something much greater than an earthly, physical land still on this sin-cursed world. And he needs to lift up his horizon to see the fulfillment of what God wants to give to him. Secondly, the great nation points to the church. 
So yes, in one sense, there is this earthly, physical nation. All of those who come from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then the 12 sons of of Israel, all that Abrahamic DNA being scattered out, and there's a big group of them. But that's not ultimately the fulfillment of this that is earthly and physical, like the land looking to heaven. We need to look beyond this physical nation to the church made up of those of every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue who, like Abraham, believe in the gospel. The third blessing, the third promise. And here is this promise of the blessing there in the lighter yellow. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The blessing points to Christ for the nations. From the very beginning of the Jewish nation, they were told, now don't occupy all the rooms in the house. Leave room for the Gentiles that are going to get blessed. Well, how many of them, God? How much room? Well, you're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And and so it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that Israel, and I know they had a hard time with the nations around them, but it's, it, it, it's still ironic that they let themselves become so introspective that they weren't remembering this distinctive promise made to Abraham. Well, so much then for sons of Abraham. That was D. Now we come to E, God's chosen people. God's chosen people. And here, this is that a concept that comes particularly from Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But I want you to notice something about this family, this, this people of God. Uh, this takes us down to verse 8, now the verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying him. He will not be slack with one who hates him. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Here's this people that God has chosen and yet inside of that chosen people are some that don't like God and some that God is going to have to judge. So you see right here from the beginning, this wonderful promise, and there is more than a hint that not everyone in the physical nation was converted. You see that, right? Who are God's people? Who are God's true people? In the truest sense, who is God speaking of when he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people? Who does God say this is going to be true for all eternity? What group? Who are they? Well, we're asking who are God's eternal people? We move on. Roman numeral two. How are the old covenant and new covenant people of God compared? Well, for this... We come to Jeremiah chapter 31 
And even as we come there, notice with me this basic contrast. In the Old Testament, we have Israel as a physical nation. In the New Testament, we have Israel as a spiritual nation. Now there are spiritual individuals inside of the nation. We may call them the true Israel. That's where David belongs. That's where Abraham belongs. That's where Moses belongs. And many, many others. But perhaps a larger number, a majority, that was a part of the physical nation that are not part of the spiritual nation. Jeremiah 31 Beginning at verse 31, let's read this together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's take this apart. First of all, A, is God instituting a new covenant? Kind of a silly question, but hopefully you're so bright you got the answer. Yes, he's going to make a new covenant. It is a new covenant, and it is a significant advancement over the Mosaic and Abrahamic. Yet it's not altogether new because Paul describes the covenants as covenants of promise. There is that which is the same, but there there are some significant changes. B, is Israel the recipient of both covenants? Yes, the one was made back in the days of Moses with the fathers, the fathers of Israel. Secondly, Is God speaking of Israel in two different ways? Well, yes, he is. Because the new covenant requires that everybody is regenerate. And the old one didn't. But notice with me uh, there in verse 31, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It's a different meaning to Israel. Israel is there altogether converted. There's a physical nation and a spiritual nation that is behind this text. And our God's people different from old to new. Well, here it is. Number one, God's new covenant people, God's new covenant Israel, will all be regenerate. That's the the green text. I will put my law within them. Not that they simply remember it, but, but... The law of God is internalized. This is what I want to do for the glory of God. But then further, number two, God's new covenant people, God's new covenant Israel, will all know God. Here's the tragedy of the old. The tragedy of the old is that the true Israelite 
is constantly evangelizing other covenant members saying, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. But in this situation, they will all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them. Thirdly, God's new covenant people will all be forgiven, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, so here is what we see the nation receiving, a new covenant nation that is a spiritual nation. Israel's people are all regenerate. They all know God. They're all forgiven. They are all going to heaven. Let's look here ahead. You see Old Testament, New Testament. You see the true Israel inside. And I want you to see this bump that's coming out. What is that bump? Well, that bump is to represent Job and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth. They're part of the covenant people, but they don't have Abrahamic DNA. They're not his actual descendants. And God is giving this for us so that we will read the scriptures and see, oh, well, God's already blessing some of the families of the earth. And there's going to be a much greater blessing that comes. And the other thing we need to realize is that the true church here in this era, we are marked by blots and blemishes. And this is one of the hardest things for us to deal with in church life. I I I thought we were all going to heaven. Only in heaven will the unbelieving blemishes be completely removed. But it is still our goal to have a believing church membership. Who are God's people? Now, thirdly, does the Old Testament know of a regenerate Israel? Or does the Old Testament only think of Israel in the two stages? Well, notice Psalm 73 where Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's not talking about an Israel that is murdering God's prophets. He's not talking about an Israel that is trying to find Elijah so they can kill him. Those who are pure in heart, it's almost like Israel is equated to that. Then further we find in Ezekiel's prophecy, uh, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. That sounds very Israelitish, doesn't it? Very Old Testament-y. But then you get this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I think that's speaking of their justification. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. They're going to be regenerate. They're going to have the new birth. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does this sound like the Israel that is killing the prophets in the days of Elijah? No. Elijah's the one who's got the heart of flesh, not those that are trying to kill him. 
And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Speaking of a regenerate Israel, most likely looking off into the future. Isaiah 45. Oh, this wonderful gospel call. uh, 45 verse 22, notice it. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. The gospel's reaching out. Isaiah's got a map in his mind. The gospel's going to go. It's going to break forward. Let your eyes drop down to verse 25. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Well, what Israel is that? Not the guys killing the prophets. So there's another Israel in view, a regenerate Israel. Roman numeral four. Does the New Testament know of a regenerate Israel? If you ask this follow-up question, then you've already started to answer the big question, who are God's true people? Does the New Testament know a regenerate Israel. Listen to Jesus talking to Nathanael, just meeting him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, literally, behold, truly an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. The only way to understand this is to understand that Jesus is communicating to Nathanael that a true Israelite is one who is regenerate, one who is not marked by deceit. Who are God's true people? Does the New Testament know of a regenerate Israel? Galatians 3 and verse 7. Yes, the New Testament knows of an Israel that is regenerate. They're marked by faith. See it here in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Remember that earlier background question, well, how are the people of God known in the Old Testament? And one of those concepts, one of the names that is given to them is sons of Abraham. Now Paul's coming along as a Jew as a converted Jew, as a converted Jew is now the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's telling us that now in God's purposes in the new covenant, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Well, maybe he misspoke. Seems rather clear for a misspeaking, doesn't it? Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ. If you're in Christ, all those other distinctions go away. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So very plainly, the offspring of Abraham means that 
such a people needs to be regenerate. Now come with me to Peter. So we've heard Paul. We've heard Jesus. Now we're going to hear Peter. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. wonder where that comes from. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a spiritual priesthood. And then notice in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. That's the distinctive feature of God's people in the new covenant. Notice 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word. This is the Old Testament people of God that are not regenerate. Now verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God for his own possession. You see what Peter is doing. He's reaching back into the Old Testament. He's getting these concepts of nation and of priesthood, these worshipers, and he's applying that all to the new covenant people of God. On the top, 1 Peter 2 and verse 4 and following. In the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse 9, you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, called out of darkness. What do we have in Deuteronomy 7 uh, 7 and verse 6? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, God chose you out of all the peoples. Peter says, God shows you out of darkness. A little different emphasis. But very plainly, Peter is saying, the New Testament people of God are regenerate. All right, now here we are in Romans. It's noon. And we're finally making it to Romans. Thank you for staying with me. First of all, we need to ask the question, who are the true people of God in Romans? First of all, there is an outward and physical Jew, and there is a true Jew who is inwardly changed by the Holy Spirit. See this passage? Remember? Romans 2, verse 28. For no one who is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, that's not what they thought, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Who are God's true people? Not those who have external circumcision. Not those who are born physically into the family. But those who have been circumcised in the heart, and those who have been born anew, are the true Jews. Next line. Romans 9, you got physical Israel contrasted with true spiritual Israel. And then you've got the physical children of Abraham in verse 8 of chapter 9 and the true spiritual children of Abraham. So we'll take two of these, verse 6 and verse 8 of chapter 9. Here they are. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from physical Israel belong to true spiritual Israel. There's no other way to read it. And not all are the physical children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means 
that it is not the children of the flesh, Abrahamic DNA, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, those who believe the promise, are counted as the offspring, counted as the regenerate offspring. So to Israel's in verse 6. There's the physical Israel of the Old Testament. There's the spiritual Israel of the New. Now we're finally 1203. We have arrived at Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 in verse 1, there is a contrast between the physical people of God and the foreknown people of God. This one is not as plain. That's why we've got all this background. I ask then, has God rejected his people? the people of the Jews. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, pretty plain what people of God he's talking about. But now in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Remember foreknow? Back in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those that God starts off by foreknowing, he predestines. Those that are predestined end up being called. Those who are called end up being justified. And those who are justified end up being glorified. I'm a lot more comfortable saying, though it's difficult, that the people whom he foreknew are this new covenant people of God, those who are truly saved. Now we're at verse 2. Who are God's true people in Romans? To be the physical, and verse 5 is going to give us the contrast. Latter part of 2, how Elijah appeals to God against Israel. Isn't that sobering? that a prophet would need to plead against that unbelieving nation that was so bad in its unbelief that it was doing the things that it was doing. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have destroyed your altars. They seek my life. But then verse 5, we've got a remnant. The true Israel inside, the small circle inside, the bigger circle. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, verse 7, physical Israel being contrasted with the elect. What then? Israel has failed to obtain. Literally, Israel has not obtained. The contrast is the elect obtained. Same word in the English, in the ESV, same word in the Greek. Israel failed to obtain, the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. They had a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Israel is said to have failed to obtain salvation while this smaller group gets it. So I hope you're at the point where you say, okay, I'm I'm getting it. There is, in Israel, Israel means two different things in the scriptures. There is a physical Israel and there is a spiritual Israel. 
There are Jews that are circumcised and they're in the line of Abraham, but they're not the true Jew. The true Jew, the real Jew, is the one that the Holy Spirit has worked regeneration, circumcising not the foreskin, but the heart. And they have the Spirit of God operating within them. So, here is this great contrast. Who are God's true people in Romans? Now, what is this? You know the scene. Looks like someone that is very, very Jewish. And you probably recognize the wailing wall there. If you look real close, you can see that there are little papers of prayers that are being stuck in the cracks there. And it's really tragic. Really tragic. God's people, according to the flesh, but they have rejected the Messiah that God sent to them. Think of what they go through. They have failed to obtain that salvation. Now, I want you to have this vision in your mind so that you can get a sense of what is going through that worshiper's mind back here. He would know that at the time of the first century, for us, the time of Christ, this is what the temple precinct looked like. This large area here. Solomon's portico going all the way around. And then the temple itself there. And the wailing wall is down on that other side. It's, it's down about 30, 40 feet from the bottom of that arrow. The wailing wall is there. That's all they've got left. It's not a part of the temple. It's a part of the temple precincts. That's what they have left. And further, if you're looking at the temple precinct, this is now from across the Kidron Valley. You got the the walls, the wailing walls down there. What's that building? What's that doing there? Dome of the Rock. Islamic Mosque. Stuck up there in that area that is supposed to be for the temple. So these guys worshiping wish they had their temple, but it's worse than that. They got the Dome of the Rock, they worship. But they do not believe the scriptures that speak of Jesus Christ. And I'm not putting these things up here so that we can help them build a new temple like some people think. God forbid. There is a temple in the new covenant. But it's made up of living stones. And Paul, and we ought as well, want those very, very Jewish individuals to become living stones in God's temple. 
and be indwelt by the Spirit of God. With a new temple, a new temple commemorating what God has allowed to be destroyed 2,000 years ago, they would still be serving God after the flesh and they would still have no hope and without God in the world. We need to demonstrate to Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we end this morning by seeing that the gospel is to go out to everyone. God's true people, God's true Israel, the true Jew, they are all regenerated, they all know God, and they all experience the forgiveness of sin. And that's what I want for you this morning. If you're not yet a part of God's people, the way for you to get there is for you to believe the very hardest thing that there is to believe about the gospel, that he was raised from the dead. Because if you will believe that he was raised from the dead, you'll believe that he was dead and in the tomb. And if he was dead, you'll believe that he died on the cross. And if you believe that he was on the cross, then you'll believe that he lived a perfect life. And you believe that he lived a perfect life as a true human, then you'll believe that he was an embryo in the virgin's womb. You need to believe with all your heart. And you need to confess. You need to say that which is the hardest thing to say. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my boss. And if you'll believe this from the heart, if you will confess this from the mouth, you will be justified. All your sins will be taken away. And you will be saved. Oh, my friend, please see that it is not enough to be a part of a physical church, physical people of God. It's not enough for you to be coming along in something of the coattails, something walking along 10 steps behind the group that is going to heaven. Because unless you believe this from your heart, unless you say this with your mouth and with your life that he is your Lord, then you're not a part of those who are going to heaven. And to you, Paul says, we need to get them to believe. And we need to be concerned to take this message to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you that when we come to a difficult to understand passage, what does Israel mean here? How can Elijah be involved in a controversy against Israel? Father, we thank you that there is the riches of your holy word that we may go on a mission from one end to the other and seek the answers to our questions. And we pray, our God, that you will give us light, that you will give us understanding, and we pray that it would be etched on the consciousness of each one of us that to be a part of the true people of God means that we have been given the new birth, means that we have believed and therefore we know God, and that we have our sins forgiven. What a wonderful privilege. And we pray, our God, that each under the sound of my voice this morning would value those treasures, the new birth, the forgiveness of sin, that this would set before us eternal heaven and not eternal destruction. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn number 358 for all the saints who from their labors rest who thee by faith before the world confess. Hymn number 358 in the red. Mm -mm.